it is now what they call forest terrorism because armed groups have suddenly discovered that they can actually take advantage of the wildlife resources to finance their terror activities. Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast for the foreign policy and global development communities and anyone who wants a deeper understanding of what is driving events in the world today. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg. I am a veteran international affairs journalist and the editor of UN Dispatch. Enjoy the show. I admit I did not know what a pangolin was before today's interview and was surprised to learn that they are both a protected species under international law and the most trafficked mammal in the world. Pangolins are small mammals with hard scales and vital to biodiversity in forested regions because they mostly eat termites. They kind of look like many anteaters and are found in a variety of regions in Asia and Africa. This includes the Congo Basin in Central Africa, where transnational organized criminal groups run poaching and trafficking networks. Most poached pangolins from Central Africa are exported to China and Southeast Asia. There, pangolin scales are considered a key ingredient in traditional Chinese medicine, and pangolin meat is considered a high-end delicacy. According to my guest today, Oluwole Ojiwale, these networks rake in millions and are a destabilizing force across several countries in Central Africa. Oluwole Ojiwale is the Regional Organized Crime Observatory Coordinator for Central Africa at the Institute for Security Studies. As he explains, pangolin trafficking is part of a broader criminal network of illicit wildlife trade that funds armed groups. This includes terrorist groups active in the region. Today's episode is produced in part through the support of the Carnegie Corporation of New York and it's part of a series of episodes featuring African experts discussing peace and security issues in Africa. A big thank you to the Carnegie Corporation of New York. And now here is my conversation with Oluwole Ojiwale of the Institute for Security Studies. So just to kick off, for people who are not even familiar with the animal, what is a pangolin? The pangolin is a type of mama and biologically described and a prominent animal that is found in the Central Africa region. And there are four species of the animal that are found in the Central Africa region. And when I talk about Central Africa, essentially I'm talking about the Congo Basin, which comprises about six countries, the Democratic Republic of Congo, the Republic of Congo, Cameroon, Central African Republic, Gabon, and some part of Equatorial Guinea. It is the most trafficked mama in the world. So by this, you are also talking about human beings being trafficked when you use the word mama. 
or you're talking about the apes, the gorillas, or what have you? So including human beings, pangolins are the most trafficked mammals in the world, like more trafficked than humans? Yes, 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 yes. That's a startling statistic for an animal that I think many listeners might not have even heard of. I admit I hadn't heard of it before. I started researching the topic in preparation for our conversation today. So what makes pangolins the most trafficked mammal in the world? What is the demand for pangolin or pangolin parts? There are two principal prongs to this in terms of what is driving the trafficking and the demand for pangolin. So several years ago, Decades of years, pangolin has been discovered. Maybe this can also be a myth, so to speak, as a special delicacy, particularly for the people in the Oriental countries, what you would describe today as probably the larger Southeast Asia. So you're talking about Vietnam, talking about China, talking about Hong Kong, talking about Malaysia, talking about countries in the Southeast Asia. So it's a special delicacy. And this is also tied to the fact that some parts of the pangolins itself, the fins, are seen as a um, critical component in the formation or in the development of uh, traditional medicine. So for many years, a lot of people have believed that pangolin scales can cure a lot of diseases, a lot of ailments. So that is driving the demand. And that is the reason why I said this is not a recent phenomenon. It has been on the rise for many years. And the second thing is that even in some part of Africa where poverty is rife, a lot of people actually depend on bushmeat, what is called a bushmeat, as in the animals caught or killed in the, in the wild. And then pangolin is described or perceived in this sense as a special delicacy as well, that uh, if a hunter is able to catch one, then he has really caught something delicious, something extraordinary that is going to be a source of protein. So these are the critical issues that actually drive the demand and the trafficking of pangolins, particularly cross-border trafficking of pangolins from Africa to other destinations in the world. Of the two sources of demand, one, the demand in Asian countries, particularly in Southeast Asia, in the countries you just described for pangolin meat, and also the use of pangolin scales in traditional medicine versus just local hunters hunting down pangolins for bushmeat, which is the source of greater demand. Presumably, it's the foreign demand in East Asia, right? Is the transnational dimension. So that presumably would mean that there are robust networks of poaching and trafficking of pangolin. Could you just take us inside how these poaching networks work from catching the pangolins to exporting them overseas? What are the mechanics of this transnational organized criminal network? What to start with is that um, at least there are three layers of the criminal syndicate. At the base, you have the local community people, the young people, the people who dwell in the rural areas, who actually go into the wild 
to catch the pangolins. That is your, what you have at the base of the, of the layer. And then at the second layers, the actual middlemen, so to speak, who most of the times come from urban areas, they come from cities, they come from whether it can be Douala in Cameroon, it can be Abuja, it can be Lagos in Nigeria, who go into some of these places based on um, available evidence in literature and even in law enforcement. And then they go into these villages to buy from the first set of people who I described at the base of the layer. And then they also act as the facilitators for the kingpins. The kingpins most of the times can be within the African countries, whether it is in Cameroon or Nigeria or even Congo or Gabon, who now necessarily to traffic these things to their popular destination in Southeast Asia. And like I said, that is not the only destination. We have also received reports of uh, destinations like uh, the United States of America, based on law enforcement evidence, arrest, and even what has been emphasized in literature on pangolins trafficking. So at the top of the layer, you have different nationalities. It could be people from Southeast Asia. It could also be the Africans themselves who now facilitate the movement of these to popular destinations. So you have at the base the rural community people, then you have at the middle, second layer, people who come from cities who are the middlemen who buy, and then you have on top of the kingpin, people who actually facilitate the traffic into the popular destination. But beyond that, I also need to mention some actors who possibly play some role as well. And in this regard, I'm talking about connivance on the part of the law enforcement agencies, whether at the ports, whether it is water, seaport, or the airport, who sometimes also collude with these actors to get those things out and to get the pangolins products, whether life pangolins or the scale, get them out of the origin countries and also facilitating getting them in into destination countries or even transit corridors. Uh, because sometimes they have to move the product from one location to another, probably within the continent, before it gets into the actual destination. So these are the categories of actors who facilitate playing one role or the other in getting pangolins traffic outside Central African countries. So are the big ports from which they're exported... Presumably, like Douala in Cameroon or Lagos in Nigeria, are those the big ports in which pangolin are then trafficked out of the Congo Basin? Yes, yes, yes. Um, those essentially are the major ports. And then the port of Matadi in Congo have also been identified through law enforcement activities in the recent time. Essentially, most of these uh, pangolin products and even other wildlife products go through these popular seaports to get them into transit corridor or to get them into the destination countries. And if I may extend these, although I expect that you are probably going to ask the question, what makes the port vulnerable for easy passage of these? We have to realize that we are discussing organized crime here. And what distinguishes this form of crime from other crime is the fact that it is organized. So 
There are times that the hustle taker, the actors, the criminal syndicate take advantage of the vulnerability of some of these ports. For instance, a lot of materials that go through the ports, a lot of products that go through the ports, whether in and out, go through the cargo. Most of the times, some of these cargoes, the ports do not have the luxury of patience to scan everything from one piece to another. It is within this context that the criminal syndicate package, to use the word, these things into the containers. And then most of the times, you can't just get into the nitty-gritty of scanning all the containers because the ports do not have that luxury of time. So what you see sometimes is probably random scanning. Waiting period is already heating deep into the shipping process. So we're talking about something that can be easily packaged and out of sight to the law enforcement, even to available technology. So this is the process in which this crime is being facilitated. And even in real cases, like I mentioned earlier, we've seen instances whereby it is outright connivance of the border policing actors that actually allow this thing to pass through. Do you have a sense of how much money in total is generated through the trafficking of pangolin each year? That would be very, very difficult to ascertain because, like I said, it is an organized crime. But what is readily available is the fact that uh, we know that this is a multi-million dollar illicit business across the globe annually. But in terms of putting the exact figure, for instance, maybe in Africa, you know, there's paucity of data even on regular business. So it becomes difficult to be able to ascertain in cogent time how much is lost on the continent based on the paucity of this data that I've measured. Because even in licit business in most African countries, it's hard to get data. But two things that are of primary concern here is the fact that uh, globally it is a multi-million dollar illicit business. And the second factor is the fact that uh, it is arming the environment and creating loss of biodiversity. So that itself can also be quantified even economically. And we surely arrive at the fact that uh, it is a huge cost to the people and to the environment. I asked that question about money involved because, you know, you described like three layers of the trafficking syndicates. There's the low-level poachers, there's the middlemen, and there's the kingpin who export the pangolin abroad. And I have to imagine that corruption in one way or another impacts each layer of that trade. Do you have a sense of how much the pangolin trade just impacts and influences corruption in many of these countries in the Congo Basin? Consider the multiplicity of different actors that are engaging in this. Corruption is also embedded into heat. And then it is only in fewer cases of arrest that you can actually pin or trace this to corruption uh, in the process. And it is at the upper hand that corruption is actually fed. At the lower level of the community level, most times those people just think they are going into the white. As a matter of fact, for most people there, 
they are never aware about maybe CITES protocols. They are never aware about any legislation that criminalizes or prohibits the catching or the killing of pangolins in the wild. As far as they are concerned, it is a natural endowment and they have to take advantage of what nature has provided to them. But it is at the level of enlightened community, at the upper layer, people like me, people like you, people who live in urban center, who probably have access to global information, who have access to international protocols and legislation about biodiversity conservation, who are probably going to be aware that this is a prohibited crime. So in that sense, the corruption is, I mean, manifest or can be traced or can be discussed at the second layer in terms of people who go to buy and then facilitate taking it out of the country into the popular destination. But that being said, it is only in cases or instances where arrest is made that then we can talk about what is the value of the pangolin scales that was discovered in that container or in that cargo or in that bag, which most of the times are rather sporadic. So you have tens and hundreds, most likely, of incidents that go undetected. So it becomes very difficult to be able to estimate in terms of the cost or the harm that this is causing to the environment. So because, like I said, it is only in sporadic incidents that we find cases that can be probably discussed or analyzed as far as law enforcement arrest is concerned. A lot goes undetected because we are discussing organized crime and it is an organized operation. And I just want to note, you mentioned CITES, which is a multilateral treaty to protect endangered plants and animals from the threats of international trade and, and pangolin is uh, part of that CITES treaty. Are there any connections that you could draw between pangolin trafficking and peace and security issues in the Congo Basin region where these transnational organized criminal networks run the deepest? Recent events have shown that cartels and groups of organized crime syndicate in Africa who have previously been trading in ivory products from elephants, have recently, in the past two to three years, focused their attention on pangolins. That is the number one thing. And this stretches from East Africa to Central Africa and even to Southern Africa. You know, these are the richest parts in terms of biodiversity, wildlife in Africa, East, Central, and Southern Africa. And the second thing that I must say is that based on available evidence as well, there's a linkage to terror groups, armed groups, taking advantage of the vulnerability of the borders, of the vulnerability of the parks, taking advantage of these fast resources for terror financing in the Congo Basin. So here we're talking about um, whether it is timber trafficking process into charcoal. There is that example in the Congo Basin, particularly in the Virunga Park in the Eastern DRC. Then the second thing is also ivory trafficking. There is a strong connection to armed groups in this regard. 
And the third one, which we are discussing here, which cannot be ruled out, is also that of a pangolin scale. So organized armed groups, terrorist group coming from West Africa, going into Cameroon, coming from East Africa, going into Eastern DRC, or those that are actually based there are actually exploring the possibility of general wildlife trafficking for terror financing. I was in Gabon last year, and in fact, when I met with the, one of the senior directors of um, PAC in Gabon, what he told me is that what we are now witnessing now is that we are seeing terror groups coming from West Africa, coming from countries as far as Nigeria, as far as Mali, coming from East Africa, as far as Congo, coming into the forest to take advantage of any resources, whether it is gold, whether it is wildlife, whether it is timber, within the forest to actually finance terrorism. And it causes something. He said what we are now facing now is forest terrorism. That is how he, calls, he, he called it for me. So there is a strong link, even though it cannot be specifically linked to one product. What is surely established is the fact that uh, terror groups, armed groups, are taking advantage of the vulnerability of our, I mean, the porosity of our borders and the vulnerability of the parks to actually leverage these resources for terror financing within African countries. So wildlife trafficking in general has been a source of funding for illicit armed groups, for violent extremists, for, for terrorist groups. And more recently, pangolin has been a more valuable item to traffic. Thus, you're seeing circumstantial evidence that these groups are seeking to exploit trafficking in pangolin to fund their activities. Yes. As a researcher, I've done extensive work on that, which um, are also available on our website. I've written on um, how the Congo Basin Rangers have been threatened by harm groups in the Congo Basin. I've also written on timber trafficking and how this is also becoming a source of lucrative trade and terror financing to harm groups coming from different parts of Africa to the Congo Basin. Are there any specific policy steps that could stem specifically the illicit trade in pangolin and pangolin scales, and also more broadly combat other wildlife crime that you suggest is used to fuel armed groups and destabilize parts of Africa? There are two approaches to this that I would suggest. The number one is the fact that there's a need for heightened advocacy and sensitization, particularly at the local community levels, where I mentioned that for them, whatever is seen in the wild is just a natural endowment from nature or from God. And then they should take advantage of it to enrich their home, maybe livelihood, so to speak. That is the people that we need to focus on in terms of advocacy and sensitization in order to bring them into become a part of the solution. That is the number one thing. And the proliferation of um, advocacy groups, environmental conservation groups, we need more of that conversation, even being escalated to a global platform like the United Nations, G20, G7, whatever it is called, 
there's a need for that enlightened conversation that is also going to be amplified at the local level. So connecting the local with the global in a nutshell. The second thing which I need to explain carefully to the audience is the fact that Honestly, I strongly believe, although I believe there are a couple of people probably hold a different view to this, but based on my experience interacting with the guardians of the wildlife in the field, the number one thing is that uh, this actually required a robust kinetic approach, military solution. Why am I saying this? In 2012, I believe, some armed groups that stormed Lobeke Wildlife Park in Cameroon, I believe, came from part of Sudan, Chad into Cameroon to hunt down elephants for the purpose of ivory trafficking. They came with machine gun to hunt down elephants. That has subsisted until now. The poachers, so to speak, are very sophisticated weapons. So in this sense, there is no way a ranger in the park is going to confront such people, such criminals with an ordinary stick or an inferior weapon, so to speak. So what I'm saying in this sense is the fact that the park rangers need to be capacitated with modern equipment, scanning equipment, military equipment, because like the, the senior official that I spoke to in Gabon when I was in Libreville, forest protection said, it is now what they call forest terrorism because armed groups have suddenly discovered that they can actually take advantage of the wildlife resources to finance their terror activities. So in that sense, the combat has to be kinetic. The combat has to come with a military approach on the part of the state. So the rangers need to be well-resourced to be able to confront these people and bring them to their knee. So I think that is very, very important. And the third layer also speaks to empowerment at the local level, where poverty is rife, where people cannot afford to get legitimate protein, so to speak, where they have to go into the wild to kill the animals, whether it is monkey, gorilla, or deer, or even pangolins that have been discovered to be a delicacy. So poverty needs to be addressed at the local level as well, so that the quality of life for the people can improve. And then probably when they can afford fish or other source of protein, then our advocacy to them to say don't kill the animals in the wild might begin to make sense to them in those remote villages and locations. But otherwise, if that is not addressed as a social problem, then it becomes difficult to combat or address pangolins or wildlife trafficking at that level of the base. And don't forget that the need of the people is very simple at that local level. As a matter of fact, on the pyramid of transaction and this illicit business, they make the least gain. It is the people at the upper echelon of the pyramid that actually make the bulk of the money, of the illicit profit in this business. So it has to be that tri tri tripartite um, solution. One on one hand, addressing the issue of community sensitization, at the other hand, developing a robust kinetic approach to combating terror groups, the poachers who come into the forest, and then at the third layer, addressing pervasive poverty at the local level 
in the communities. These, I believe, are three critical approaches that we need to continue to integrate into the solution at local and global level in addressing pangolins trafficking and wildlife trafficking in general. So, you know, you've mentioned that this is at once a security issue. The park rangers need to be more empowered to stop the poaching. It's a development issue. You need people at the local level not to want to get into wildlife trafficking, but presumably this is also a diplomatic issue and it requires also the enlistment of populations in destination countries, particularly in Southeast Asia, to reduce demand for things like pangolins. What can be done to that latter end to reduce demand and to enlist the support of governments like Vietnam and Malaysia and and China to combat pangolin trafficking? Yes, I think the recent COVID-19 pandemic actually offers us an opportunity to begin to rethink our interaction with wildlife generally. COVID-19 in China was actually traceable to wildlife markets in one. And if some of these countries, based on available evidence in Southeast Asia, have also been described and documented as popular destination for wildlife like pangolins, it's also reasonable to begin to think that such countries will begin to place serious prohibition on issues of importing of wildlife product into the country. And it also offers a lesson for multilateral and bilateral institutions probably engaging on wildlife conservation, probably engaging on global health security. Because what can be linked to this now is that the unbridled consumption of wildlife products is actually a major threat to global security. COVID-19 has attested to that with indisputable evidence. So countries like China, like Vietnam, and even countries in Europe and the America now needs to come up with robust surveillance and legislation that is actually going to be seen to criminalize attempts to bring wildlife products through illicit means into those countries to serve as a deterrent. And secondly, I think we also now, even though the world is getting relaxed about COVID-19 now, but it's also important for us to actually now begin to prioritize engagement, bilateral cooperation, and discussion that can actually stem the free flow or stem the tide of wildlife trafficking, particularly from resource-rich regions like Central Africa or any other part of the world into these destination countries. So like I said in a nutshell, I think if this has been going on on the radar for many years without attention, the COVID-19 pandemic has now opened up the vista and a window to us to actually connect unbridled consumption of wildlife products as a major threat to global security. Oluwole, thank you so much for your time. This is very interesting. Thank you so much, Mark. (music) 
Thank you for listening to Global Dispatches. Our show is produced by me, Mark Leon Goldberg, and edited and mixed by Levi Sharp. If you have questions or comments, please email us using the contact button on globaldispatchespodcast.com. Before you go, do take a moment to show your support for the show by becoming a premium subscriber. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts, you can do so with a couple taps of your thumb. If you're listening elsewhere, you can go to patreon.com slash global dispatches. We rely on support from listeners to continue to do what we do far into the future. And by becoming a premium subscriber, you will unlock access to our entire archive of hundreds and hundreds of episodes. Please rate or review the show on Apple Podcasts. <laughs>